All right, all right. Welcome to the Canvas Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, the rise of artificial intelligence is dramatic, confusing, and even frightening. AI is already fundamentally changing the rules and methods of warfare. Professor Sam Tangretti is co-author of a new book that tries to break down the implications and reality of AI for warfighters. Chris sat down with him this week in San Diego. This week, we've actually been in San Diego all week, uh, attending the West USNI uh, AFCA Symposium in San Diego. It's an annual affair. It brings together a lot of people from the U.S. Navy industry, the electronics industry. A lot of the Navy leaders have been here. All the Navy's top leaders have been here. But among other people who are here um, is Professor Sam Tangretti. Uh, Sam Tangretti is a professor of National and Naval and Maritime Strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. He's a retired Navy captain. He's held command at sea, director of strategic planning organizations at the Pentagon. He's published a number of books. He's a noted authority. He's been on the show before. Uh, Professor Sam Tangretti, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. So what brings us here today is you you are out with a new book along with uh, George Galdarisi. I'm sorry that George can't join us today, but uh, your book is on AI. This is a, this is not your first book on AI. It's not the first book on AI. The, 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 the idea of this is, I think, to get to a wider, broader audience and explain it to maybe some people who aren't as deep into a lot of the tech talk that, um, that otherwise maybe has books have done before. This book, published by the Naval Institute, is just out, Algorithms of Armageddon. Algorithms of Armageddon. The Impact of Artificial Intelligence on Future Wars. So what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, uh, first I'll point out that uh, you're absolutely correct about trying to get to a wider audience because, uh, and that's why we picked the name. It's, probably, it's a catchy, catchy name, but the point of it is the question is, will military applications of AI, artificial intelligence, uh, bring us a greater ability to deter possible wars or will they promote them? That, that's one of the questions. Now, the book I call a comprehensive layperson's guide to military applications of artificial intelligence. The thing that prompted uh, me and I uh, prompted George is the fact that there's all this dialogue about artificial intelligence and much of it, if it comes from industry, is usually hype. And then if it comes from concerned people, it's often inflated. You have groups like uh, Human Rights Watch that wants to ban killer robots. I can't really define what killer robots are. But what we wanted to do is walk through people who may not know, um, who are interested but may not know much about AI or may not know much about military things, Let's walk through the ways that AI might be used by the military, military applications, and what that is the overall, uh, what the ramifications are for our future. And what little I know, and this is, this is not an area where I've done a whole lot of reading, I've seen a number of interviews. I, that's, almost, that's almost an admission of how mm -hmm. bad I am at this. Um, 
but a lot of the a lot of the the gist of a lot of what I've heard is nobody really knows where this is going. It is difficult to define all by itself. I mean, in my car, I have a I have a new car, and every time I park, I get an overhead view of where I'm going. And people sit in the car and go, "Where does it? How do you get that picture? There's no overhead camera. How is it generating this image? It's a pretty good image, and it's pretty accurate, but it's an AI image. It's a, it's 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 a combination of a lot of sensors, and it works pretty well." That's a very rudimentary application. What can can you give us some examples from a military point of view of where the state of the art is today? What what is something being used today that's already out there in general use, like my car parking guide? Well, first you have to begin by uh, defining what you believe artificial intelligence to be. And uh, there's three definitions that we use in the book and three definitions that uh, we've encountered, I've encountered in uh, researching military applications of AI for the past three years or so. Uh, the first is what everybody thinks of, a machine that can replicate human behavior or human decision making, usually in visual uh, perception and then in language translation. And that's the primary initial focus of AI and military applications was this visual perception. What uh, Project MAVEN is the first unclassified AI program that the uh, Department of Defense had. Basically, what it did is um, it had a uh, AI system look through the, the hours and hours of videotape filmed by drones flown over Afghanistan and Iraq to see if they could detect any possible uh, terrorist activity. And then uh, having detected that, we could build up a pattern of what sort of activities was normal in that region and what not. And um, the, this, the video would have been filmed anyway as a natural course of operating the UAV within the region so that the uh, operator, the pilot who's not located in the aircraft but basically is piloting, would know what was going on. So what the AI did is take that hours of film and try to determine were there actual terrorist activities, targets, and it does that by um, comparing images. And that's where your visual perception aspect, that's the main one. And then language translation is like the large language models that we have that people are using for writing chat, GPT, and, and that sort of thing. Now, there's a second definition, which is the more accurate one, and that is um, AI is statistical tools that teach a computer to make decisions based on past data. And you're talking about the big data. Now, if you if you subscribe to the first definition, uh, the AI seems more human-like and probably more threatening. If you go with the second one, you realize that this is just statistical analysis that the machine's doing. Why it seems uh, intelligence is because it is able to correlate vast amounts of data, more than a human could possibly remember and then try to make sense, sense of that, find patterns, and come up with the conclusions. 
now, when you look at that, uh, there's a third definition that came up by a, a Navy mm -hmm. lieutenant commander that I love. He said, well, you know, it's anything we haven't done with computers before. So uh, the prototype example, I guess, is Operation Maven, and that's the visual perception. Now what we're also looking Spread at... Spread a little bit more because you keep referring to it. Okay. Um, it was started by uh, or championed by DepSec Def um, Bob Ork as part of his third offset. And again, basically what you had is a very well-trained computer looking through these hours and hours of drone video footage, tried to determine if there were any possible terrorist activities, targets, whatever, and then provide that data so that the uh, so that the, uh, our operating forces could understand what the activity was happening in that region and where they should search for possible terrorists. That is basically the second definition, a statistical analysis of this big data. Now, is it replicating what a human could do? Um, yeah, it replicates what a human could do if we had infinite number of humans and infinite number of hours. I mean, you're talking about thousands of hours of video coverage. One person could not possibly do that, whole team couldn't possibly do that, but the machine can, because it's trained to do that in its machine. It thinks in terms of ones and zeros. Uh, it's operating at the speed, electronic speed. So that was one of the great advantages of that. Now, AI is being applied to things like um, sonar, uh, you know, submarine sonar analysis, analysis of, uh, of sonar, um, sonar systems and, and the like. And again, these are tasks that humans could do, but they're difficult. And the AI, as we say in the book, the advantage of AI is it remembers more than any humans can, could feed more data, doesn't have to use the restroom, is it gonna go on strike, doesn't have to take leave, um, so there's great advantages of using the machine to do these analytical tasks. Can, can I ask something? So, I mean, I'm, I'm confused. So there, there's all this data, big data. Uh, big data's been around for a long time. How do we mine it? How do we mm -hmm. analyze it? How do we write algorithms and programs to scan it? That's one thing. What is AI, artificial intelligence, as opposed to that sort of basic write a program, look for anomalies, come up with, with, with some sort of analysis. Uh, this is, is this, I mean, what, the, what's the difference there? The, the difference is that and uh, previous software and computer systems, in order them to identify, say, images, you had to program in this is this image, this is this image, this is this image. What, the difference is the AI is trained in those images and then can make analysis on images that it, it has never seen before. That's because the algorithms provide it with a means of uh, comparing. This is like in visual perception. It's basically what the machine does is it looks at an image. Say, say um, it's trained that a turtle looks in a certain way. So it only saw the picture of this 
type of turtle. But if you put another one of a different uh, type, size, whatever, it, might, it will recognize that as a turtle. Previously, computers had to be programmed so that it had every type of turtle in its memory uh, so that it could actually identify this is a turtle. This way, the machine has, has uh, designed to be able to, again, make predictions based on uh, past data. So it's got the past data. This is a small turtle. It encounters this big turtle, and then it decides, yes, it is a turtle. And, and that's, that's the difference. The machine is actually sort of self-programming in the sense that it adds on to the information already has. And that's the difference with AI. But I have to warn you that 60% of everything that one hears on AI is hype. Um, much of the systems cannot do exactly what the proponents claim. I mean, you had Elon Musk saying, I'm going to have 10,000 robo-taxis on the street by 2019, or whatever it was. No, he can't do that. The AI is not anywhere capable of doing that. The AI is capable of creating an image around your vehicle, but it can't drive it. It's, we're, no, we're nowhere near there. So a lot of the, I, this is why I say 60% of what, what one hears about AI is hype or come on a sales pitch. And then there's about 20% that is almost science fiction. That, that's when people talk about AIs will replace humans and we will be slaves of AI and, and, and that. And then there's a reasonable 20% that is accurate, uh, very uh, honest. And what we try to do in the book is uh, ferret all that out. So there is a wealth of fiction. Mm -hmm. It's been going on for years and years long before people even said they were computers and now right. AI. But uh, you know, things that come to mind right now are like you know, the, the Whopper, mm -hmm. you know, shall we play a game? Mm -hmm. um, Skynet becomes aware the rise of machines that design their own machines. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the fear that's out there for right. these things, that they will just take over. You have a couple relatively small um, just headings in the, in the book. Right. One is AI cannot start a war unless we let it. Right. AI cannot stop a war unless we let it. Right. So that's, that's sort of, when, when, when you get right down to it, that's one of the basic fears. Right, uh, and it's, it's misplaced in the sense that... The fear is misplaced. The, that, the fear that AI can control humans is misplaced. The fear that we should have, and we constantly say in the book, is the fear of humans using AI to control other humans, just like it is happening in People's Republic of China. The AI itself has no consciousness. All the science fiction uh, writing about AI assumes that this will be a conscious entity that can make decisions on its own. We are nowhere, I, I mean, based on the research I've done and everything else, that can't be done. We don't even know what consciousness is. This, these machines are programmed to make a variety of decisions within a narrow context. The advantage they have, like playing chess, is that the chess master might be able to remember a thousand possible moves. This machine remembers hundreds of thousands of possible moves. So, uh, in fact, when the first 
big AI publicity uh, occurred, which was um, the beating of the chess master uh, Kasparov. Uh, one of one of the uh, a professor um, who is well respected in AI circles, you know, stated this way. He said, "Seeing a computer beat a human at chess is like." watching a bulldozer be an Olympic weightlifter and lifting weights. Of course it will. So, but getting back to your question, the fear we have is humans using this tool to control other humans. AI itself is nowhere near controlling uh, humans on its own. What we say as far as starting wars is basically that's the decision-making uh, use of AI. There, there are three, three uses. One is this visual perception. The other is to speed up the decision-making loop by adding additional data and making recommendations to the decision-maker. And then the third one is autonomous systems, actually driving the systems themselves. Um, the illustration that, I was, that we have used in the book is about the potential of the General Secretary of the People's Republic of China launching a war, the AI aspect is the decision-making. The, the system has gathered all this particular data, including everybody, uh, the entire population of the US's uh, Gmail address or email address, and has all this data, and that system says this is the best time to uh, start the war. So the system is advising someone who is interested in doing that. The system itself does not start the war. Uh, the system is advising the optimum time. Um, and that's the use of AI in decision making will be about that sort, gathering all the possible data and supposedly providing the best prediction on the outcome of behavior. And um, the I, interesting illustration is, um, of this mm -hmm. is uh, in World War II, when Japan decided to uh, unleash the Pearl Harbor attack, the final decision to say, we're going for it. They actually had very, very detailed data of how more, much more powerful the US was than Japan. However, their fear was that the U.S. would always be more powerful. They could never possibly win a war, and this was the best time to do it. Now, the AI theoretically could gather up much, much more data and, and, and integrate the various aspects of uh, war fighting, from cyber all the way to kinetic. And it has the information concerning, you know, who in the U.S. is going to vote for whom. And so tying that together is kind of achieves what the Soviet Union always wanted. They called it the correlation of forces, where they could bring all data together and determine when is the best time to defeat Nodale. When, when are they at their weakest and what, what techniques to use. So the AI itself in, in that role doesn't start the war. It just advises the person who wants to start the war when the best time is and how, what techniques to use, what, 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 what tactics, what operational techniques to use. That's, that, what it's doing is a speeding up 
the decision making and adding more information from the big data that it would require a vast number of humans to do, intelligence analysts and the like, to, to put together the answer. One of the applications, it seems to me, and that's why I'm asking you, because I, what do I know, is um, sort of a buddy system, a, an assistant, a robotic assistant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I, like, uh, thinking about what the Air Force is trying to do now with an unmanned aircraft paired with a manned right. aircraft, um, that's been, that's another scenario that comes from, from, from fiction. The Air Force is trying to do that right now. Mm -hmm. um, is that, is that a logical application here? How far can you take that, this human-machine pairing and, 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 and interface? Right. We, we call it uh, human-machine teaming, and it uh, has different aspects of it. Part of it is uh, speeding up decision-making of humans. If you're, you're sitting in front of, say, a uh, council uh, uh, missile um, defense council and stuff, the, the machine helps gather the data that you would want to gather and to alert you faster than the human can be alerted as far as what the threat is doing. And so that's, that's very useful. Um, the things like the loyal wingman, which is the unmanned aircraft, that, that there are degrees of autonomy. Uh, we, at this point, can't design a combat system that can survive in combat in the same way we can't design a fully autonomous car. It will take millions of lines of code, so much testing, but what can be done with the artificial intelligence is that it could operate kind of as an autopilot to the aircraft till there's a certain point where it might encounter combat and someone needs to give it the orders of what it's going to do, or the orders need to be pre-programmed. So the loyal wingman would come along with the uh, manned aircraft, but the major thing it will do is to conform to the motions of the manned aircraft, as if it would be programmed as if that manned aircraft had a human wingman, and the wingman makes sure that the enemy does not cross, you know, can't get up behind the tail of the first aircraft and other, you know, it, it operates in that way. But that's still limited decision making in the sense that the aircraft did not decide when to launch itself. The aircraft isn't going to decide when to return. It's going to follow basically the patterns of the human system. That, that's the level of AI we can develop now. And the reason, and it bothers me when Navy officials talk about, okay, the future fleet will be 450 ships of which 150 will be unmanned. We can't make them, we, ha, we can't, at this point in time, we cannot build a ship that can operate on its own in a combat environment because it's tough engineering. It's really tough. Elon Musk and the others can't make a self-driving car drive down the street successfully without possible dangers. You're talking about a ship dodging missiles, uh, maneuvering in ways that um, there are no guidelines. And that brings me to, to a point, real point about AI. AI works 
with defined rule sets. What I mean by that is the AI system that defeated Kasparov and chess can't play checkers. It doesn't know what that rules, those rules are. What we have today is called narrow AI. The artificial intelligence is designed to do a particular task and it knows every bit of data to do that task. But we have not designed AI systems that can multitask like humans. Um, if you went in front of the uh, you know, chess playing AI and you brought out a checkerboard, it cannot recognize it. It would not know what to do. Uh, so AI is not this all-encompassing uh, superiority to humans. It could do things better than humans in certain tasks in the same way that a bulldozer can dig a hole much faster than humans with shovels. There's a, the mystery or mystique around AI, that AI is advanced computing. The mystique about it is uh, a lot of hype and, and sales pitch. Yeah, chat GBT, let's just, just talk about that one. You know, people are using it to create essays. I'm sorry, say that again. Chat GPT, chat, chat, chat GPT. Um, you know, people are using it to write term papers, articles. I read an read a, um, interview, I, I read an article by a copywriter that was uh, let go by their uh, company she worked for and she went to her boss and said, I can write so much better than this chat GBT program. And he said, yes, your writing is much better, but chat GBT is good enough. That's all we need. We, we just need good enough. And so AI on this sort of task is good enough. But that program takes its data from the internet. And when you are you know, gathering the information, what gathering information it takes it from the internet. Much of the information on the internet is wrong. You know, you've got conspiracy theories, you've got a whole variety of things, and this is absorbing that information. Now, the people who have developed the large language model say, well, wait, it can determine patterns. So if it's uh, these conspiracy theories that pop up, it'll compare it against the thousands of accurate data and it'll be able to turn, determine that that's, uh, that that's fiction and not, not apply. I'm not so sure we are at the capability of doing that. My colleague at, one of my colleagues at the Naval War College, when ChatGPT first came out, you know, she used it to uh, try to recreate academic papers and, uh, and her subject was cybersecurity and the papers read okay, but every citation was wrong or applied, the ideas were uh, cited by the wrong source. In fact, two of her papers were cited by the thing with the wrong author, the wrong, because it's simply assembling the data. And if it doesn't have something to compare the data to, it does not know whether it's right or wrong. It just, number of times it was on the internet and whether it fits this pattern. One of the points you make in here is that, especially between, I mean, it's, it's hard enough for you and I to figure out, or me to understand, what, what are we talking about here? What is artificial intelligence? Art, artificial um, intelligence is advanced computing. That's what it is. 
when the scientist who first came up with the artificial intelligence idea, it was at Dartmouth in the 1950s, a summer study led by a, a person named John McCarthy. McCarthy wanted to use the term artificial intelligence. The other scientists didn't. They said, this isn't intelligence. This is, this is, we cannot act or imply that this is the same as a human being. But artificial intelligence was more of a catchy title. So that's what they used. They referred to something called the Turing test. Turing was a uh, cryptologist, mathematician, uh, PhD in uh, Britain, in the United Kingdom, who helped with the ultra uh, program to uh, decrypt uh, Nazi and other uh, opponents' uh, codes. Enigma. Enigma, yeah, Enigma. And um, he was um, always interested in uh, the idea. He came up with a question, can machines think? And his answer, which everybody seems to accept, as called the Turing Trust, is if a human thinks that that machine is a human, or they think that the machine can think, then the machine thinks. Now, to me, that's not a very valid way of describing intelligence. And in the book, uh, we refer to it as the Turing trick, because it's very much like Machiavelli's, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, Renaissance strategist book on the art of war, where he says, the prince does not have to be sincere. He merely has to appear sincere to his subjects and, and potential opponents. And that, that's what these systems are. This is advanced computing. They don't actually think. We think they're thinking because they come up with an answer that a human would have come up with. But carrying that into the world of diplomacy, um, you talk about arms control treaties or arms limitation treaties or a number of mm -hmm. constructs mm -hmm. where, this, where nations have tried to apply limits to others or all have agreed to certain limits. Mm -hmm. The inability to come up with a common definition among different nations of what AI is also seems to complicate a lot of those treaties, a lot of those understandings, agreements, SALT treaties, anything mm -hmm. like that. Well, the problem is you, you can't come up with an arms control treaty because AI is not a thing. You know, the arm control treaties, you know, the Washington Naval Treaty in the 20s counted battleships. Battleship, uh, battleships are a thing. Salt Treaty and the various treaties in the nuclear counted warheads or missiles. So AIs is a is statistical analysis that can be done by a variety of machines and you can't count it. Um, you could say, well, this nation has so many autonomous systems, say so many unmanned or uncrewed systems, but most of those are actually controlled by humans uh, through wireless signals. Not many of them actually necessarily have uh, AI features, but they're the same systems. You, you can't determine unless you took apart the uh, electronics in that uh, combat system, whether or not it's AI controlled, or whether in fact it's merely programmed to do a particular mission, or whether or not most of the time it's controlled by a human remotely. 
um, how you, so you can't really tell uh, what one ha is powered by AI and what isn't. I guess you could tell it in actual combat based on how it behaves, but to create a treaty to, to limit AI, it's not a thing. How, it's like trying to limit electricity. How are you going to limit, how can you have a treaty limiting electricity? Now, admittedly, you say, well, we'll count all the electrical plants. And so I guess for AI, we could count the AI producers, Google, Amazon, whomever, and then limit that, the numbers of producers, but it's still, it's not controlling AI. Uh, my belief, and I think George concurs with this, uh, me and the book, is uh, AI can't be controlled by a treaty. Also, even pushing aside cheating, yeah. Uh, you can't define, it's very tough to define, you know, identify AI. In fact, one of the, we have a quote in here from one AI scientist, and she says, you know, AI's not a thing, it's an ideology. You know, so how are you going to control the ideology? The ideology is that we're going to use statistical tools in a variety of uh, functions and that will perform better than humans. I just want to walk off with one more and that is you have a line in here about the United States will lose the military AI race without a direct significant effort. Yes. What, what would that even look like? Okay. It is the current policy of the United States that we do not want to use remote systems, unmanned systems, we do not want to allow them to use lethal force unless it's under direct control of the human. That is, the human press the button to shoot off the Hellfire missile or whatever it is. Uh, China, you know, People's Republic of China, Putin's Russia, they're not adhering to that. They are building systems that will use lethal force based on what the AI decides. Um, that is an advantage in any sort of war situation. Now, what, I, what we talk about in the book is three concepts. Human in the loop, human on the loop, human out of the loop. Human in the loop of the decision-making is the concept that a human needs to be the one who presses the button to shoot off, to, to engage, to use lethal force against, against other humans. And uh, on the loop means that the human has programmed the system, has in place the system, and sent the system out for a mission, but the system itself makes the final decision on when to shoot, when not to shoot. Now, this is not anything new. If you think about the Cold War area captor mine, sea mine that we had, which was designed to fire a torpedo against a target, the human was on the loop in the sense that it decided where to put the mine, but it was the mine that decided to use the lethal force. And, I, and that's what our potential opponents are designing their systems to do, and that's what we're not designing our systems to do because we want to keep the human in the loop. My argument is that in high-end war fighting, communications will be limited, and the systems will have to make decisions on their own just because we can't talk to them. So. Um, Right now, we have not accepted that that will be the reality of the future, and therefore it's a disadvantage. So um, we have to start 
thinking about designing systems that operate under mission command, not under direct control of a human as far as use of lethal force. And that's why we're kind of behind. It's all very sobering. Uh, a lot of things to think about. We've been talking to Professor Sam Tangredi. He is the author, along with George Galdarisi, of the new book, Algorithms of Armageddon, The Impact of Artificial Intelligence on Future Wars. Professor, thanks for being our guest today. Uh, th thank you for inviting me. And the last thing I want to say about the book is, uh, whatever I've said in this podcast, the book tries to make that a lot more understandable. And uh, the point of the book is to take, take uh, a very complex subject and make it understandable to people who are non-specialists. It's a tough challenge. Thank oh, you, yeah. sir. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishes podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>